that um, when I'm in D.C., particularly when I leave the Hill, nobody knows that I'm a member of Congress. Uh And um, that allows me to not just decompress, but for me to um, slow down, um, do some of the things that I would do were I not in Congress, um, to have conversations uh, with the smartest man that I know, uh, who knows me best. Yeah. your high school sweetheart, Stan. My right? high school sweetheart, yeah. who um, who probably watches C-SPAN more than he has ever in his <laughs> entire life. Welcome back to another episode of the Ordinary Warrior Podcast, where we celebrate the extraordinary journeys of ordinary people who endeavor to make this a more just world for all, while finding ways to safeguard their own peace. I'm your host, Halona Shaw, and I'm thrilled to bring to you stories of courage and determination that will inspire you to recognize your inner warrior. At a time when there is so much division and uncertainty in our country and our world, my guest today, the freshman congresswoman from North Carolina's 4th Congressional District, lives and works under the understanding that all politics is local. In spite of the current and ongoing chaos in the U.S. House of Representatives, Congresswoman Valerie Fushi continues to beat the drum for the issues that impact us all, irrespective of political party, women's reproductive rights, meaningful gun control, and voting rights among them. I am honored to introduce the Honorable Valerie Fushi. Congresswoman Valerie Fushi, welcome to the Ordinary Warrior Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's nice to see your face. I usually see you in church, and I haven't for the last few weeks because I have not been well, Um, although I do watch virtually, so I do see you virtually, but it's good to see you. Good to see you as well. And I know that we've um, maybe struggled a little bit to get it going for various reasons, um, which we may or may not touch, touch on, but your schedule is busy and unpredictable at times, so I really appreciate you. being able to set the time aside to talk with me. Sure, it's my pleasure. Um, I, I wish I could say my schedule is more flexible, but it actually is more fluid than flexible. So, uh-huh. Still able to fit, fit me into the fluidity. I appreciate it. Sure. Um, so Representative Fushi, and I decided to do this podcast, the Ordinary Warrior podcast, the idea behind it was what I say, ordinary people doing extraordinary things, but there's nothing ordinary about you or any of the guests that I've had um, because you're all regular people who are doing um, things that in some instances, in many instances, a lot of people would never step into uh, the decisions that you've made. And specifically, that is about um, going into politics. Um, and I know, you know, we've, we we um, have spoken a little bit on this, and I teased you a little bit saying, you know, you always wanted to go into politics, right? Which obviously, no. Right. Um, and that's that's much of the journey that I, I want to start there. Um, you're a native to North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Specifically, Chapel Hill. Correct. As am I now, not native, but yeah. a, a Chapel Hill resident for 10 years almost. And this is where we met. Um, but so I would love to hear from you. You don't have to go into great detail, mm-hmm. but, you know, how does one end up in politics if you're not in a family, a, pol- a political family, mm-hmm. you know, who have um, the legacies of, being in political service. Can you can you kind of talk about that journey and really just how did you get to where you are now? Uh, thanks for that question, because it, it is um, interesting to go back and think about how I arrived um, at this point in my life. But I would say simply that it had a lot to do with uh, my village or the neighborhood in which I grew up and how being 
um, in a space where you felt like you didn't, either you didn't have political power or you did not believe that politics um, mattered to you. So mm-hmm. I say that to say um, when I was growing up in the North Side neighborhood or the Pine Knolls neighborhood, I don't know that we thought about politics except for the fact that um, we were a part of the civil rights struggle. So I grew up in the 60s. My parents weren't political. I don't recall my parents talking about voting until I was probably um, an adult. So being in a a village where everybody cared about everybody else in that village um, had a lot to do with me wanting to give back to that village. I think when you grow up um, relatively poor um, as it relates to finances, but rich in how people relate to each other, how people take care of each other, Uh, That's something that grows in you to the point where when you have the ability to help out, you do. And I think that that's what happened with me after becoming a parent and having children um, to enter the education system. I thought about how education had benefited me and helped me to um, be able to accomplish some things. And so I realized just how critical education is um, and wanted that for not only my children, but for other children. So I think getting into politics had a lot to do with me uh, running for school board. And that was just so that I could be influential or to give um, my time and my passion for education um, the opportunity to help not only my kids, but other people's children. Well, and what you described, it's community. It's, you know, the village is your community. Correct. And I I would imagine that that sort of giving back that you described, you got something important and right. supportive and fortifying from your community. And, you know, you kind of can't help but see where you fit in. Sure. Um, and what you can do in those um, when those opportunities arise. And so when you ran for school board, the reason I this this might seem or feel tedious, but, you know, one of the things that I love that your story demonstrates is like I joked in the beginning, you don't decide I'm going to run for U.S. Um, Congress and that's what I'm going to do. It's steps that lead you to that. And so you start at school board, start Mm -hmm. local, which is, you know, the the encouragement um, that seems to be given uh, to try and get more people involved Mm -hmm. in it. So you were, when you ran for school board, you were working at the police department? I was working at the police department. And actually, I had been appointed to uh, the Coalition for Battered Women for Mm -hmm. Orange County. And I started with that um, and and getting a sense of the needs of of women and children, particularly who were fleeing from domestic violence. Mm -hmm. The other thing um, had to do with my research and wanting to be a good parent and feeling like I had the opportunity to do something that my parents couldn't do because they were working two and three jobs. Well, Mm -hmm. I was only working one. And Mm -hmm. that at that time, that job gave me the ability to be present in my son's schools. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to see some things that I would not have had I not had that opportunity. So to be able to go in and see some things where um, I'm worried about my children's education, my children's education because I'm raising two black boys. Mm-hmm. And the research said in in many um, uh, periodicals and what I was hearing that something happens to Black boys by grade four, regardless of income level, regardless of parents' education level. And it just didn't seem right to me that children could be in the same classroom, have the same teacher 
and some kids just not get it. And for me, that seemed like it fed into a narrative that um, Black children were either inferior or there was something about us in particular that prohibited us from learning Mm -hmm. like other students. Mm -hmm. And being in a classroom, seeing that um, there were some things that I can see how this might have uh, a kid to feel uncomfortable, or I can see how this child might feel like this place is not for him or her. And it particularly started with my youngest son, who was in third grade and who was sitting at the back of the room. There were only three Black children in that class. They were all male. And the Mm -hmm. three of them were sitting in the back. And I, you know, you get a sense of what your children are capable of. Um, I didn't understand why Terrence wasn't doing well. Mm -hmm. It was because he couldn't see. Yeah. Couldn't see the board. That's how we found out he needed glasses. Right. But his needs were not being met. And that seems like something obvious, but that's a major failure on the part Mm -hmm. of the institution. Yeah. And I know that some insti- some schools, maybe all schools, I don't remember, it's been a long time, but they, mm-hmm. you know, are, they do screenings, they do vision screenings mm-hmm. in the schools right. that I grew up in and where my kids go to school now. Um, was that part, just out of curiosity, was that part of it? Because that's a pretty major oversight. No I intended. think that was part of it, but I think that what got me was that when I went to the classroom to talk about another issue that we may or may not touch on, I found it interesting that there was not an expectation that he would do better. Right. So there was no reason to test his vision because he was probably doing as well as was expected. Yes. And I think that that's what infuriated me. And then some other things happened to let me know that "Mm, this is a different situation Mm -hmm. and I needed to address it. Yeah. And when I addressed it for my son, I realized that this might be something that's not just happening in this classroom or even with this teacher. Mm -hmm. Is that a story you can share? I can share it. Uh, It had to do with the Million Man March Mm -hmm. and my husband taking my sons to that march. We left church mm-hmm. on Sunday and happened to hear um, an advertisement about the Million Man March. Mm-hmm. And we all listened to it. And my husband, Stan, decided, you know, I think we should go to that. And I mm-hmm. said, great. Mm-hmm. And so we stopped at Carver Plaza at the ATM. He got some money out. And we drove home. And when we got there, we started to pack. And he said to me, you're not going. (laughs) It's the Million Man March. So he took our children, who were at the time 8 and 11, Mm -hmm. and they drove to Washington, D.C. And they would call me along the way and talk about how they met other men and their sons traveling Mm -hmm for this march and how everybody seemed to, even though they didn't know each other, to have some kind of um, kinship. Yes. And it was an amazing trip for Stan and my sons. Mm -hmm. So they returned on Tuesday because, you know, the Day of Atonement was that Monday. They returned on Tuesday after having met Rosa Parks. Yes. Stephen, when all kinds of things happen during that trip for them. And Mm -hmm. Terrence goes to school with his Million Man March button on. The teacher Mm -hmm. made him remove it, and she would not allow him to share when other kids shared what happened to them over the weekend. And that did it for me because it was the same teacher who had those three boys sitting in the back of the classroom. who decided that he could not share. He came home and he was distraught that he could not share. And I had the two of them get in the car with me. We drove back to that school 
we went to that classroom Mm -hmm. and we had a discussion with that teacher. And I left the classroom, went to the principal's office and told her what had indeed happened again in this classroom. Mm -hmm. And I let her know that I had told the teacher that the next school year, I would come to that building and find out which African-American kids were in her classroom. And I would call each and every one of those parents to make sure that they knew to look out for what Uh was happening to their kids in that class. The next year, that teacher did not have third graders. She had fifth graders. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, so for the listener who doesn't know what the Million Men March is, they can look it up. That was about 1995, I want to say. Yeah, 95, 96. Something like that. And and life-changing, even if you never made it to, to the, besides. Even if they never made it to the march, that experience for them was life-changing. And every child who's asked, what did you do this weekend, should have the opportunity to share it. The teacher had reduced that experience to one person, Mm -hmm. Louis Farrakhan. Yes, yes. Yeah. And dismissed the experiences of the million or however many folks were there. Yeah. Yeah. And life changing. Everyone that I know who was there, you know, described something special, what you just, you know, about coming across people who were on that, that journey Mm -hmm. for that weekend and how kind of magical those moments can be, especially Mm -hmm. for kids, if it's something that's, um, that they're interested in. So So, I ran for school board in 1997. Okay. So right after. And did you reach out to those parents? Did you have I parents did. to reach out to? Yeah, I did. I did. So how long were you on the school board? So I was on the school board for seven years, um, mm-hmm. basically two terms before I was elected to the Orange County Commission. And so uh, the school board runs on the art years and mm-hmm. commission on the even years. So I had one year left on my school board second term. Uh, when I was elected to the Orange County Board of Commissioners. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how long were you there? Two terms, eight years. Two terms. Okay. So, and did you go to the state Senate from there? I went to the state house from there. So the I was elected to the state house um, in 2012. Okay. And in 2013, I was appointed to the Senate and then ran for that seat in 2014. Yes. Okay. Um, and so a total so, of 10 years in the General Assembly. In the General Assembly. Mm-hmm. And what, it might be jumping the gun, but how do you compare sure. that experience, just being, I guess, on the, on the State Assembly? What was that experience like for you? I'm not going to ask for a comparison. Sure. Well, I, I will tell you this. Um, as as a county commissioner, you know, I, I felt like the commissioners were um, the um, board of last resort. Um, uh-huh. Those particularly safety net um, issues, because those programs are administered through county government. And so being um, in a situation where you um, made decisions about land use planning, um, funding schools, uh, ensuring that um, as it related to social services, that people's needs were being met. I think as as close as you are to um, families as a school board member, you have a more, you have more responsibility as a county commissioner. And I think we know that all politics is local, but Mm -hmm. if you are responsible for ensuring people's safety, um, that their um, social needs are being met in terms of housing and nutrition, um, that you are um, ensuring that we are protecting the environment and our natural resources, Mm -hmm. the the responsibilities of a, a county commissioner are myriad. And mm-hmm. they impact lives every day. Um, in the General Assembly, 
having the um, responsibility of ensuring that the state budget does that same thing, um, particularly for federal funds that are funneled through state government and down to um, either the municipalities or um, county government. I mean, that is um, a large responsibility, but you're not as closely connected to the people per se, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And being in the minority as I was for all 10 of those years and understanding that there there needs to need to be met, but because you are not a member of the majority party, those needs are dismissed in a way. Mm-hmm. Almost as if if you're a Democrat, you're in a district where everybody is a Democrat. Well, that's not the case. And yeah. it's ludicrous yes. to consider it that way. Because as you are having Democrats suffer, there are Republicans who are suffering too. And for them, it has nothing to do with a D or an R. Mm-hmm. It has more to do with them being able to um, ensure that they are providing the best quality of life for their families. And it's our responsibilities to the extent possible to see to it that they can make that happen. Right. And so if you're talking about denying people their rights as, or making it difficult for them to take advantage of those rights, such as um, voting, um, such as having access to reproductive um, yes. health care are important to people on a daily basis for you to decide that you just don't think that what's already in the Constitution make sense anymore. That yes. all of those who came before you just didn't get it right. And mm-hmm. so there's a fair amount of frustration that comes with that when all you want to do is provide for people's needs. Um, and, and it's interesting to hear people talk um, who have legislative authority to talk about not choosing winners and losers when ex- they're doing exactly that. You are allowing some folk to have um, to benefit more from what the state can offer than you are allowing others. And to um, have this bootstrap mentality that everybody else ought to do it like I did it. I came up from nothing. And so I did this. I did. Well, we don't know what other things were in place that allowed you to progress. But we also know that our country our state and even our localities have a history or tradition of holding some folk down, whether intentionally or not. Um, There are uh, systems and mechanisms in place that do just that. So that that was frustrating um, to me, um, even though I had a modicum of success as a legislature Mm-hmm. legislator by getting some bills passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and two of them were statewide that, that were, um, I think, were, were critical. They were important. What but bills were those? Over a period of 10 years, not so much. Well, when I was a freshman <clears throat> in the General Assembly um, in the House, I joined um, another Democrat and two Republicans on a statewide bill that provided for pharmacists to be able to give injections other than flu shots. Who would have known Yes, that at some point we would be calling on pharmacists to do just that. Absolutely. Um, to ensure that people were uh, being safeguarded against COVID-19. Yeah. How so long? That I'm curious. How long? How? 2013? That happened in 2013. Okay. In my well, first year. And then yeah, who would have known? Before I left, um, I joined with two other senators um, to put forward a bill that prohibits child marriage in North Carolina at this time. So at that time, only two states um, allowed for um, children at age fourteen to get married by mm-hmm. some, you know, by, by some um, measure. Uh, and that was North Carolina and Alaska. Nor- okay, so North Carolina, it was up until that time, it was legal for 
under certain circumstances, 14 and 15-year-olds. To be married. To be married. With parental consent, I would assume. Correct. Okay. And And so our goal was to make it um, age 18. Yes. That you could not um, get a marriage license to marry in North Carolina. Um, But because the law allows um, individuals to emancipate at 16, we were not able to get it under 16, but certainly that is the case now. So it's 16. And and I think what was most egregious to me, we knew of a case where a 57-year-old man was married to a 14-year-old. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, the the implications of that um, have to do with... uh, Um, trafficking, you know, um, all all of those things that we knew, not only did they not look right, they just aren't right. And to subject young girls in particular, um, somebody else having the ability to marry you off to somebody who's old enough, in some cases, to be your grandfather. Mm -hmm. That is not the case anymore in North Carolina. Well, thank you. Those sex trafficking and all kinds of things that, you know, that that helped. It aided um, that to happen in in our state. So so when I say I had a modicum of success, um, certainly being able to be in um, a place where uh, we could affect that kind of change. Mm -hmm. Well, and congratulations. Those are two really important ones, uh, not at all to um, say anything about anything else that was sure. what was brought and unsuccessful. But that's also a perfect example of how those are, those are not Democrat or Republican right. issues whatsoever. And the people in your district yeah. or, you know, wherever you represent, like you said, it's not possible for it to be all one party represented mm-hmm. anyway it's just not that's not practical no not at all and and again you know in 2013 uh one of the first um bills that was passed by the republican majority was that bill that denied uh, medicaid expansion and look where we are now now i'm not yeah. in the general assembly but we beat that drum yes until that music was heard to the extent that everybody realized that, okay, this is a good thing. Mm-hmm, and we can mm-hmm. keep rural hospitals open if yeah. we accept this federal money. And our portion is not being redistributed to other states that have decided that they're going to do what they need to do to help their people who who are not eligible for mm-hmm. health insurance otherwise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or who can pay for it otherwise. Right. And so from the state assembly, the general assembly, you went, you ran for U.S. Sure. Uh, House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. And that was in 2022, is that mm-hmm. correct? Correct. Okay. So I, I keep asking these questions about how did you decide, how did you decide? Because what I want to illustrate is... You didn't go from being a kid in Chapel Hill to the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, And it is in some ways stepping stones to get there. Mm -hmm. And each step is you've done such important things for for the people in each of those places. So when you're local, when you're working um, on a local or a national level, you're, you know, a person, an individual as a politician is still having, you know, individual impact. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how did you decide that you could run for the house? Because that sounds overwhelming to me. And yeah. that's why I want to ask you, how do you decide? Well, thank you for that question, because I, I don't know that I ever really decided. I think by some measure, I ended up there. So I have uh-huh. pretty much decided that after 10 years of the General Assembly and certainly um, not being as as successful as we would have wanted to be uh, for some things in particular, Medicaid expansion, 
uh, voting rights and, 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 you know, all of those things that perhaps um, it was time for me to look at doing something else from another perspective. So I had decided pretty much that I would not seek another term. I actually decided two years prior to that, but I was asked by uh, my leadership if I would stay and help raise money and try to um, make that change. We had increased our numbers in 2018. We had gone from 15 or 16 to 22 members um, in, in, in the Democratic caucus. And so we only needed three to four more to at least remain relevant as it related to legislation. And it did not appear that that was going to be the case. And so I said, well, you know, I've served and perhaps it's time for somebody else. And when when Congressman Price announced that he was not going to seek reelection, there were a number of people who thought that I should give this a a try, Mm -hmm. that I should uh, continue to represent them in some way and that um, I should go for it. So we we talked about it. Uh, we prayed over it. We called Pastor Coleman, mm-hmm. prayed with us, and we just waited to see where we thought God was leading us. And certainly, it it seemed to me, and I, you know, I don't deny that I am a woman of faith. I do walk daily with God, and I do believe uh, that I know when He's speaking to me directly, mm-hmm. um, and it's not just the inner me that's saying or stands saying, yeah. but that um, we're being led in a particular direction. And we did feel that we were led to um, at least run. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it would, I will tell you in all honesty, at some points during that campaign, it really was not about winning. Mm-hmm. It was about bringing some issues forward. And it was about giving people who believed in me and what I could continue to do to help them because I am a listener. Yeah. And I do walk by faith and not by sight, Mm -hmm. that I should give it a chance. And I, I felt that even if I didn't win, it would bring out some things in others that ultimately, whoever won would provide for the people in this district just as I would have tried to. Yes. Yes. And so and so you ran mm-hmm. and you won. Mm-hmm. And uh you so this is the end of your second year? No, this is the end of the first year. This is the end so of the we, first year. Yeah, so okay. we came, we were sworn in January 2023. Okay. So we're at the midpoint of this two-year term. Okay. And uh, what, so you were talking about um, in the state assembly, you know, seeing what you could do to impact the most people. Um, what, how, I started to ask a comparison question a little while ago. So how does your, how, so far, what has this experience in the U.S. House of Representatives, how does that compare to what your experience was in the state assembly? Very similar okay. uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, my priorities have not changed for the most part because they were the same priorities that uh, we ended up facing near the end of my tenure in the General Assembly. And that is that we, in my opinion, we need uh, federal national standards for voting rights. Mm-hmm. That um, we are at a, a critical juncture now where uh, the right to vote is being suppressed. Um, and, and with uh, these theories that we have out there about um, elections being stolen and putting stumbling blocks or roadblocks mm-hmm. in, in the paths of people who are trying to get access to the ballot box. That is still an ongoing struggle in 2023. Mm-hmm. So um, working on that, and of course, we all know what happened 
um, after the Supreme Court made uh, the reversal on the Roe v. Wade decision. Now we have that fight before us. Yes. National scale. And for me, this epidemic of gun violence and not having federal standards to ensure our safety, those three things are um, at the top of my priorities for our folk, Mm -hmm. for Americans, uh, and certainly for the uh, my constituents in the fourth district. Mm-hmm. That fight goes on, and I am still, to use your term, a warrior for those yeah. three things. And um, the the opportunity to address that at the federal level, um, you know, it's it's frustrating, just like it was in the General Assembly for us to not be able to have these bills brought to the floor of the House so that people, particularly uh, measures for gun violence prevention. Okay. Can you talk about that for the listener who doesn't understand the the ins and outs of it? What does it mean to not be able to bring it to the floor? Certainly. So because we are in the minority, it is up to the majority to determine which bills are heard. Uh Uh-huh. Which bills get the opportunity for an up or down vote? Mm-hmm. And so we have done. We have um, introduced a number of gun violence prevention bills that we have also initiated discharge petitions, uh, such that the speaker can bring those bills forward for that vote. And so that is not happening. Um, so that means that we have to continue this fight um, to expand the Democratic caucus so that we can be in the majority and have the opportunity to have these bills brought forward. You know, when you do the the work, the polls say that 81% of Americans want federal standards uh, that relate to background checks. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't recall the number, but it's certainly greater than 50% of Americans who want assault rifles banned. These yeah. are not um, these are not weapons that you use for everyday ordinary protection. Right. These are weapons of war. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the majority of Americans want to ensure that people who should not have access to guns, don't have access to guns. And then there is the mental health piece Mm -hmm. where we work to ensure that people get the help, the assistance that they need and that they don't resort to um, suicide or homicide. Mm -hmm. Which shouldn't seem secondary, but it does seem secondary because of where it falls into the gun control reasonable gun control argument um, because mental health, uh, you know, providing necessary mental health services um, would save lives also. Absolutely. But it's like a, I get this wrong, like a paper tiger, like the Mm -hmm. idea that it's about mental health when an event, when a tragic event happens, when an incident occurs, there's so much conversation about lone wolves and mm-hmm. you know mental health um and not enough about the actual reasonable gun control so when you yeah. when you so that means that the majority just simply does not allow those conversations to happen is that it in simple terms in simple terms i i i would substitute conversation to yeah. Um, the, well, the conversations occur, but we are not addressing, Mm -hmm. um, the necessary results. So for instance, I'm a member of the gun violence prevention task force. Yes. And one of the things we were tasked to do as members was to seek the opportunity to have conversations with Republicans who, Mm -hmm. Uh, would 
have the conversations to talk about why we need to move this kind of legislation forward. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that um, I was assigned 10 and I spoke with at least four um, Republicans who I believe share pretty much the same thoughts that I have on why we should advance this type of legislation, but um, it was not popular within their conference Mm -hmm. to do so. And so that's also frustrating because one of the things that I have learned from the beginning is that the designation behind a name does not tell you who who people are. And so I have wonderful conversations and I do believe uh, good relationships with members on the other side of the aisle. Yeah. But it's just that um, as it relates to um, attaching to uh, party lines or party narratives, we are so um, entrenched on our sides that mm-hmm. we don't, we're not moving to come together. And even though we have those conversations one on one, in the larger scheme of things, nobody budges. Well, and so that's like the, you know, people talk about like the tribalism of, of, um, you know, Congress and how people, so that's interesting to hear that there are people that you feel like you have good one-on-one relationships with, but they really are just, um, uh, committed, I guess, to their side or the set of issues or the, um, no, I, I, I think I think that your your um, what you're saying describes exactly what's happening. But I think um, of late, and this probably happens more often than we pay attention to. But I think with everything that's going on, you you will notice that there are a number of members of Congress who have indicated that they are not seeking reelection because they simply can't do it anymore. Uh that they don't feel that it's a place where uh, the conversations can be held and move to something beyond conversation where we are advancing Mm -hmm. legislation that benefits everyday Americans every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, That the gridlock is such that uh, if if they've been there for a while, why bother? Uh, Because I don't see things getting better. Or you'll have people who have been in it for maybe five to 10 years um, and they have young kids and and particularly this session, they haven't had a chance to spend time at home. We were in Congress 10 weeks straight. And Mm -hmm. what I'm hearing is that that's something that doesn't happen. But we were dealing with the debt ceiling crisis and two CRs, two continuing resolutions to make sure that there was not a government shutdown. So people who are not having the opportunity to to spend time with their children or their spouses or their friends say, okay, but I'm not getting anything done and I'm missing out yes. on this back home. You yes. know, for me, my children are grown. I have one grandchild who is only two and a half hours away, whether yeah. I'm in North Carolina or in DC. And my husband is retired and who is with me. Mm-hmm whether I'm in one place or the other. Mm-hmm. So it's it's different for me, but mm-hmm. I, I, I can imagine how painful it is for a West Coast member who has young children or um, a member from Alaska or mm-hmm. Hawaii who can't do a hop yes. back and forth. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's so, it, I mean, you know, it, it's the kind of thing where, you have to be committed to um, service in a way that you understand that ultimately um, your role is to provide for the best quality of life for everyday Americans every day. And that's by in, in terms of education, that's in terms of whether you want to own a small business, that's in terms of you having access to health care. That's mm-hmm. in terms of you being able to choose your representatives. Mm-hmm. All of those things that uh, matter to people, 
that we are focusing on that. And what we're doing, are we're not doing things that are performative, that get the 10 minutes um, on, on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, mm -hmm. um, that somebody's always standing out on the Capitol steps to stop us, to ask us, so why did you do this or why did you do that? And mm -hmm. how is that benefiting the people in your district? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's where I am, and that's why um, I will continue to do this um, for as long as the passion is here, um, the people choose me as their representative, and I believe that I can make a difference. Um, yeah. I, you know, I don't know how long that will be, but certainly it, it's important to me, and I am committed to seeing that some of these things happen relatively sooner than later. Yeah. Uh, just like Medicaid expansion. Yeah. It it happened as of December first, as of last Friday. We have it in this state. Even though it took us ten years, it took us ten years to get there. Yes. But we yes. got there. Because well, people were committed. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, there are a few things pinging around in my head, but one is what you just like you entered Congress, you entered the House at a time when if there was a time before which it felt like it all kind of went to pot, right? Where mm -hmm. how do you work with people across the aisle? It does look like there's a lot of performative stuff going on. Mm -hmm. There are certain representatives who just got to be in this got to be in the spotlight, usually behaving badly. Mm -hmm. um, so there's all of that going on. And for people who are, who either are politically savvy enough and understand all of what's going on, or the people who just watch Fox News or MSNBC or CNN in the evening, um, it's, it's hard to see sometimes that mm -hmm. there are other things that are happening that are not yeah. the performances in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. um, so what what can you say just about how much goes on sort of maybe just behind the scenes, but not mm -hmm. just not in the spotlight? Y'all are um, getting work done. Sadly, not enough focus yeah. on the issues that um, people are talking about at their kitchen tables or at the beauty salons or the barbershops. And that's the unfortunate piece uh, because we're trying to um, keep the focus there uh, while those who have the authority to change the conversation or change the narrative are not interested in doing so. Mm -hmm. You know, when we, when we um, were facing uh, the debt ceiling crisis, this was not about the narrative that was put out there about increasing the deficit. This was about paying our bills that we had already made. And mm -hmm. so we turned that, and I say we collectively, but the narrative out there was that we were adding X amount of dollars or trillions of dollars to the deficit when we were talking about preserving our credit rating as a country. We were talking about paying our bills. We were talking about keeping services um, available to um, the American public. Again, when we got to the situation with the continuing resolution, because we had not passed those 12 appropriation bills um, that constitute a budget or a spending plan, this was not about um, adding to um, the deficit. This was about keeping the government functioning such that the services that people pay for through their taxes, they had access to, mm -hmm. or ensuring that our military service folk were being paid, or ensuring that um, our offices were remaining open and people were being paid for that. Understanding that they would have, our employees would have an obligation to show up every day and not know when and if they were going. I mean, they knew at some point they would be paid, but it, you can't tell your creditors that, hey, I didn't get paid this month because the government shut down. 
Right. No, that money is still due. We changed the, the focus was not on what we needed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think that ultimately, uh, because we got past those things, um, I'm an optimist and I do believe that under new leadership, although that's suspect to me in some ways, um, there is a desire to look like we care, to Mm -hmm. look like we can function, to look like we are not um, the the house. We're not the chamber of dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the only way to change that narrative is to do something. Yes. And, yeah. and that's what I'm hoping um, that that will occur in these last weeks of this this um, calendar year. And that when we return after the holiday break, that the focus will be on uh, passing those appropriations bills such that we don't run up against another CR deadline, um, that people can have some certainty with inflation coming down, with of the job situation being what it is and, and being at a point where we can focus on those things that matter, um, gas and groceries, um, mm-hmm. our, our foreign en- enemies, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that we have an education system that benefits um, all of our students, that it's not uh, reliant on zip codes or um, who can attend where. I mean, mm-hmm. those are things that I got into um public service for, and and they still remain at the top of Mm -hmm. my list. And I would hope that my colleagues, particularly in Congress, would um, start to make that our focus. Mm -hmm. How does it look? I'd like to say uh, everything is promising. Okay. That's good. That's good for all of us. (laughs) We're at a point where, you know, the fouling season uh, is here. Um, people will be out there making promises yet again. Yeah. Um, but I think Americans have had a year of watching just how Congress has performed. And, you know, our rating is an all-time low. It's not mm. like they are upset with Republicans or they're upset with Democrats. They're upset with Congress and yeah. this inability to get the job done. Yeah. So I think that we're at a point where where maybe people who have not been involved or who have not watched as much, mm-hmm. they, they feel it more so now because crazy things are happening. Mm-hmm. And they're yes. intrigued. They are intrigued. It's true. Um, sometimes it's like... Uh, a horror flick. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it is it's intriguing and and you know, when you're talking about the leadership, that's that could be a whole another episode that we could talk right. about election deniers in positions of power, mm-hmm. which is um scary considering that we're on our way mm-hmm. into another um, you know, we're already deeply in the election uh yeah. the campaign season for the presidency. Um and we what? don't even want to talk about how AI might might influence any of that. So that's another forty five minutes at another time. Well, I'm going to invite you back <laughs> because we're going to have to talk. I had I've been thinking about AI and seeing the stories about it, and um, and you know, wondering and worrying about the ways that it it will impact. And mm-hmm. I hadn't quite thought of it in in terms of um, elections and voting. So. That's another thing on the list of things to <laughs> to be concerned about. What um what's what would surprise us, the listener, most about um the work that you do and what it's like to be in Congress? I don't know how to answer what would surprise you most. I think if there's anything is that um when I'm in DC Particularly when I leave the Hill, nobody knows that I'm a member of Congress. Uh And um, that allows me to not just decompress, Mm -hmm. but for me to um, slow down, um, 
do some of the things that I would do were I not in Congress, uh, to have conversations uh, with the smartest man that I know, um, who mm-hmm. knows me best. Yeah. Um, Your high school sweetheart, Stan. My right? high school sweetheart, yeah. who um, who probably watches C-SPAN more than he has ever in his <laughs> entire life. Um, but that's just so that we can have the conversations. Yeah. Um, that when I'm talking to him about this as my sounding board, he has a frame of reference because uh-huh. he's he's seen some of the shenanigans of that particular day. Yeah. Um, so um, and even here, um, there are people who know that I'm in this work, but they've known me since my days yeah. in Northside and yeah. Pine Knolls. And they see me as Valerie yeah. or as some of them know me as Peanut. Um, uh-huh. That. That's probably surprising to people who don't know me. And, and that also um, helps me to be able to do the work because I am supported by people who supported me as a child mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. who taught me um, a lot of things about life and community mm-hmm. and caring and passion and service. Mm-hmm. Those are people who... When they see me, I'm just Valerie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in in church, I'm just Valerie. Didn't you, I mean, you you attend church with me, so you know that there are references to what I do. But sure. for the most part, people see me as a congregant mm-hmm. at Baptist yeah. Church, and they allow me to be that when I'm mm-hmm. there. So I, that not- might surprise some people. Well. The surprise to me is that sometimes I see you up on the pulpit singing and I love that with the praise team. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, um, I would imagine everything that you just described about being just Valerie, um, at home allows you also to be an accessible, approachable, um, person for your constituents, which I sure hope so. Yeah, I think that's not the case for a lot of uh, representatives and senators and what have you. Um, I don't know that they, I don't know that all go back to their constituents and do what they're supposed to do and and yeah. um, be visible and that type of thing. So it's nice to see with the ordinary folk hanging out that's with right. us and worshiping. I love it. I love yeah. it. I was at a restaurant in Hillsborough about two weeks ago. And uh, oh my! And people, most of them know who I am, and they're kind of waving. They won't bother me. Um, yeah. Every now and then, somebody will ask a question, but that's the reason why you make sure you are in these spaces because mm-hmm. some people don't um, don't feel that they can pick up the phone and call you. And yeah. I get that. But if they see you in the community among them, then they are subject to walk up to you and say. Hello, are you Congresswoman Fushi? I have a question. Mm-hmm. And so taking the time and having the opportunity to have those conversations are most important to me. And for mm-hmm. somebody to, to catch me, I'm walking down um, the street to the parking deck and they simply say, you know, it's just good to see you out with us. Yeah. That's yeah. all I wanted to say. And yeah. then walk in the other direction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, on Sundays I can't get out of church. But it's, <laughs> it's it's because people care about me, yeah. and um, yeah, it, it makes me feel good that they do. Well, you have your tribe, certainly with us, yeah. and in Chapel Hill, and and we love you, and we hold you from wherever you. you are. We're holding you from there. Thank you so much. I I needed that. Well, I have taken up more than enough of your time. And I'm really, really grateful that we were able to talk. We had some bumps bumps along the way, Um, but it's been really nice to talk to you. And I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Alona. Um, This has been more than a a privilege. It's been a pleasure. Same, same here. Thanks. Take care. Thank you. You too. Feel better. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ordinary Warrior Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today and that it gives you encouragement and maybe just a little bit of company on your journey. 
Remember, there's strength in numbers. Join us next time for a new guest and inspiring conversation. In the meantime, take action and take care. Until we meet again in the break room, where ordinary warriors find their tribe.